watch how things turn out. Uh, as I was uh, sort of mapping out what I was going to say about this passage this morning, I was going to start off with a question uh, about what you think most people are afraid of in our world today. Uh, but that seems like a bit of a redundant question just now. When I picked this passage a while ago, I wasn't picking it with the coronavirus in mind. I picked it because I know my own heart. And I know how prone I am to worry about different things. And because I meet people all the time who are fearful about different things. Fearful about the future. Fearful about whether they're really saved. Fearful about their health. Fearful about loved ones that they know who are not yet trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's no doubt that the coronavirus has certainly heightened our fears and added to our fears that we already have. Beyond the fear of getting the illness, there are also fears about people's jobs. People are worried about whether they'll lose holidays that they've paid for. People are worried about how they're going to balance work and childcare if the schools are off. People with small businesses are worried about whether their business will stay afloat. If there was ever a phrase that captures the sense of fear in our society at the moment, it's the phrase panic buying. We see that people are not quite as self-sufficient as they look most of the time. We see people putting their own needs before the needs of others and we realize that we're not quite as civilized a nation as we'd like to think that we are. It can all be quite a bit unsettling, can't it? Situations like a, a global outbreak of a, of a disease seem so much bigger than us. And by nature, we don't like to feel out of control, do we? It's easy to become fearful about our current situation and about what, about what lies ahead in the weeks and months that will go on from here. The question I want to ask this morning is, what does the Lord Jesus have to say to people who are feeling fearful? And to answer that question, we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. So please turn to, to Matthew chapter 14 in your Bibles. We're going to look at verses 22 to 20, uh, 33. Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is God's word. I want us to notice three things about this passage this morning. And the first thing is this. Frightening circumstances awaken fear. We see that in verses 22 to 26. Picture the scene with me, would you? It's the end of the day, and Jesus has just finished feeding more than 5,000 people using only five loaves and two fish. That's the story uh, before the one that we're reading in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. Now, this book called Matthew is an account of Jesus' life and ministry, and there's three other such accounts in the Bible. The others are Mark, Luke, and John. And in John's account, in John chapter 6, we see that there are some people who have seen Jesus feeding the 5,000, and they're very impressed, and they want to make him king. But the thing is, Jesus' kingship is spiritual. It's not an earthly kingship. He wanted no part to be part of this Jewish political attempt to make him king. And neither did he want the disciples to be part of this effort either. And so what does he do? Well, we pick up in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. And then after he dismisses the disciples and after he dismisses the crowd, Jesus himself goes up on a mountainside to pray. This is often Jesus' pattern. We see it throughout the gospel accounts. Withdrawn from the action, withdrawn from crowds, withdrawn even from the disciples to spend time with his heavenly father in prayer. He makes prayer a priority in this way. And so Jesus is up on the mountainside alone praying and everything is peaceful there up on the mountain. But out on the water, it's a completely different story. Look with me what the disciples are up against in verses 24 and 25. Uh, They're a considerable distance from the shore. They're being buffeted around by the waves and they're rowing against the wind. And on top of that, it's very late. It's shortly before dawn, we read. In other translations, it says the fourth watch. That's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. It's very late and they're still awake. So they're in a storm, they're far from land, they're in a boat they're not in control of, they're exhausted from rowing, they've had no sleep, and then to make matters worse, they think they see a ghost walking towards them. They're terrified, verse 26 says. This is the stuff of nightmares. This is, this is like the worst possible horror story. These are frightening circumstances that the disciples find themselves in, and they're full of fear. But the second thing I want you to notice is that faith in Jesus quietens fear. We see that in verses 27 down to 31. Faith in Jesus quietens fear. Jesus sees the disciples crying out and he speaks to them. And you can see what Jesus says there in verse 27. He says, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. He doesn't say, uh, take courage. It's not, it's not that bad. It's, He doesn't say, don't be afraid, come on, pull yourself together. He says, it's I, it's me. He assures the disciples with 
his presence. Now, we do exactly the same thing. If a, a child wakes up in the middle of the night uh, having a nightmare, we say, it's okay, daddy's here or granny's here or whoever it might be. That's the first thing we say. We assure them with our presence. We don't kind of wade in with, now, son, let's just think about this for the moment. What are the chances of there being a bogeyman under the bed? That's not our opening comment. Our first comment is to say, it's me, I'm here, it's okay. And that's exactly what Jesus does here as he encounters the disciples. He assures them with his presence. But there's a deeper meaning to Jesus' reassuring phrase, it is I. Three words in the English, two words in the Greek, ego, I me. I am. And the phrase I am is a very special phrase in the Bible. By using this phrase, Jesus takes us back to the way God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. When God revealed himself as the Lord, as I am. I am was the name God wanted to be known by and worshipped with in Israel. I am is a name that expresses something about God's character. It expresses that he is dependable. It expresses that he's a faithful God who demands the full trust of his people. Full trust even in the most frightening of circumstances. And this is the phrase that Jesus uses to assure Peter. This phrase spoken now by Jesus gives the disciples assurance that Jesus is with them. Jesus is their Lord. Jesus is present. So Peter gets down out of the boat, walks on the water, and then heads towards Jesus. This must have been an incredible thing for the disciples to see. Jesus, the Lord of all creation, standing on top of the water and then beckoning his follower, Peter, to do just the same. What a sight that must have been for those disciples. Peter's fear has been quietened because his faith is in Jesus, his Lord and Savior, and he walks out towards him. Now, that would be quite a happy ending to this story. It would be great if we could just stop there. It's quite a nice end to this frightening situation. But that's not where the story ends. You see, Peter begins to feel afraid again. Now, why is that? Well, have a look with me at verse 30. What do the first six words of verse 30 say? Answer, but when he saw the wind, that's when he was afraid. When he saw the wind, Peter stopped looking at Jesus and he started looking at the waves and that's when he began to feel afraid again. I think that's a good definition of fear, actually. At looking at the waves around us instead of looking to Jesus. When he started looking at all that was going on around him instead of the one who said to him, come, Peter began to feel afraid. And it's the same for us. When we focus on our circumstances, instead of our Savior, we begin to feel afraid. When our struggles seem greater to us than our Savior, we begin to feel afraid. When our situation seems more real to us than the presence of our Savior, again, we begin to feel afraid. That was Peter's experience, and we read that he began to sink. 
But he doesn't sink for long because he cries out to Jesus. Look with me at the end of verse 30. He cries, Lord, save me. And Jesus does save him. Look how he responds to Peter's fearful cry in verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Jesus was always right there. Peter only needed to turn to him. I want you to notice the compassion of Jesus to people who cry out to him. I want you to notice this personal touch of reaching out, of taking hold. Jesus didn't have to reach out to save Peter. Jesus could have just used words. We've seen that before. I don't want us to rush past this detail of Jesus reaching out his hand. These were the hands that touched lepers and sick people and healed them. These are the hands that took dust and made mud to open blind eyes. These are the hands that welcomed little children and blessed them. These are the hands that would in time be nailed to a cross for Peter's sins and for our sins. And these are the hands that Thomas would examine to prove that Jesus was not a ghost and was in fact the resurrected Lord. And these are the hands that are held out to Peter on that stormy night. This is a picture of Christ's tenderness to his fearful followers. But notice that Jesus doesn't just respond to Peter's fear by holding out his hands. Now there's, there's also a rebuke for Peter at the end of verse 31. You have little faith. He said, why did you doubt? We need to be careful when we see Jesus' rebuke about little faith because we could miss the point of this story entirely. We could read and think that we can muster up more faith. And if we do, the result will be, be healing or some immediate benefit. But that's not Jesus' point. When Jesus refers to Peter's faith being little, he's not talking about faith as something subjective that we need to muster up. No, what matters most is the object of your faith. Peter's faith was little because he looked away from Jesus and he looked at the waves. This is what caused Peter to sink. Here's the point. Your faith is strong only when the object of your faith is strong. So when your faith is focused on something other than Jesus, it doesn't matter how much faith you think you have. It is little faith, and you will sink sooner or later. You see, Peter had taken a backward step here. He fully trusted Jesus when he got out of the boat, but then he began to doubt when he saw the wind and the waves. Doubt had replaced trust. But we see that Jesus confronts Peter's doubt to bring him to his senses. You have little faith, he says. Why did you doubt? Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. There's no need to doubt. There's no need to lack faith in Jesus. When our faith is in Jesus, it quietens our fear. The third thing that we see from this passage is that Jesus' authority compels worship. We see that in verses 32 and 33 at the end of the story. Jesus' authority compels worship. That's how the story closes. 
Verse 32 onwards says, And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Here we see the disciples' worry turn to worship. They'd come to see Jesus' power and authority over nature, not just to walk on water himself, not just to invite Peter to do the same, but even his authority over the weather. Notice the calm weather in verse 32. And all they can do is worship. It's the only proper response. Jesus' authority demands such a response from us. They worship him as the Son of God. God the Father had already declared Jesus to be the Son of God back in chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. God would declare him to be the Son of God in chapter 17 at the Transfiguration. And in chapter 8, even the demons confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And now the disciples confess that they too recognize Jesus to be the Son of God as they worship him in the calm of the storm. When faced with the Son of God, there was nothing else they could do. Jesus' authority compelled them to worship in Him and say, Truly, you are the Son of God. I wonder about us, though. I wonder how we should respond when we read these words. Well, either we're going to say, Lord, save me, or, I, or we're going to say, Jesus, leave me alone. If your response is, Jesus, leave me alone, I need to be honest with you that deep water and dark nights and sleeplessness and exhaustion and thinking that you're seeing a ghost and global outbreaks of a virus and all the other troubles of this life are the least of your worries. Because the Bible teaches that an unimaginable trouble waits those who reject God. God cares enough about humanity to do something about our rebellion and to take it seriously. You see, when we rebel against God, we're saying, go away, God. I don't want anything to do with you. Leave me alone. And this is precisely what God does. His judgment to rebel sinners is to withdraw from them, to cut them off from himself permanently. But the problem is, since God is the source of all life and all good things, being cut off from him means death and hell. God's judgment against rebels is an everlasting, godless death. It's a terrible thing to fall under the sentence of God's judgment. And it's a prospect that we all face, every one of us, since we're all guilty of rebelling against God. And yet the good news of the Christian faith is that it doesn't have to be this way. Because of God's great love and because of his generosity, he did something to save us from our sinful rebellion. He sent his son, his own divine son, Jesus, into this world. Jesus didn't rebel against God, so he didn't deserve death and punishment. And yet that is exactly what he took. He died for us. Although he had the power to walk on water, as we've seen today, he willingly submitted himself to be executed on a cross, to take our punishment on our, and our sins, to be a substitute for rebels like us. The debt that we owed to God, Jesus took by dying for our sins. He took the full force of God's justice on himself so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be pardoned forever. And it's all completely undeserved for us. From beginning to end, this is all a gift of God. It's what we call grace. 
God accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for our sins, and he raised him from the dead. And this risen Jesus has been appointed as judge, God's judge of the world, and one day he will return and he will call each of us to give an account for our actions. But in the meantime, what is on offer through this good news is new life, both now and eternally. We can come to know that sins are forgiven through Jesus' death. And we can make a fresh start with God, where he himself comes to live within us by his spirit. We can experience the joy of a new relationship with God. And what's more, when we're pardoned through Jesus' death, we can be sure that when Jesus does return to judge, we'll be seen as acceptable in his sight. The risen Jesus will give us eternal life, not because we've earned it, but because he died in our place. And my, my plea to you, whether uh, you've come here for the first time or whether you, you've come here over many years, is do not say to Jesus, leave me alone. My plea to you is to turn to him, to trust in his de death and resurrection, to appeal for God's mercy. Become part of God's own family as an adopted son or an adopted daughter. It takes, uh, it takes humility to cry out like this. We know from Scripture that some people will reject this message. I'm asking you this morning for it not to be you. Don't reject Jesus' offer to save you this morning. You cannot say now that no one has warned you of the wrath to come, the judgment to come. I plead with you this morning, you've got to respond to this message. You've got to cry out, Lord, save me. There's a prayer that you can use in, in the bulletin. You can speak to the prayer team or speak to somebody that you trust after the service and, and respond to the good news of Jesus. But this isn't just a, a message for people who don't yet know the Lord Jesus. Those of us who are followers of Jesus also need to respond to what's in this passage. You see, G, uh, Peter was a follower of Jesus and yet he cries out, Lord, save me. I think that there are a lot of us who are not very quick to do that. I think there's a lot of us who are followers of Jesus who are not quick to ask for his help in this way. I think for a lot of us, we think, Lord, save me is just a cry for those who are becoming a Christian. And that the way that we go on in the Christian life is kind of down to us. It's up to us to navigate the troubles of this life. One of the greatest tricks that the devil plays is to convince Christians that they don't need to cry out, Lord, save me, every day. What do I mean by that? Well, I think some of us are in denial that we have troubles and fears. We just suppress them. We come to church, people ask us how we're doing, we say, fine, we go through the motions, we smile, the fake happy smiles. And we ask them about how they're doing and we quickly move the conversation on. But during the week when we're not on show, we're buffeted around by trials and suffering and sin. And because we're in denial, we're not doing the very thing that we need to do, which is to cry out, Jesus, save me. I can't do this by myself. I need you. Every hour, every minute, every second, I need your help in this life. Brother or sister in Christ, if that is you, let me plead with you too. It shouldn't be this way. Cry out to Jesus. He is present. 
If you feel like your faith is failing, reach out to him. He is there. He's with you. And he's placed you in a church family who are with you and for you, who want to share in your troubles and point you back to Jesus, the only hope in trouble. We want to lift your eyes from whatever's making you feel like your faith is sinking and point you back to Jesus. I urge you to stop denying that you have troubles with suffering or sin and cry out to Jesus and reach out to his church. Others of us aren't so much in denial about our troubles. We're just distracting ourselves from them. We know we've got troubles, but we're just trying to escape from them. The next buzz, the next city break, the next escape to the country, the next holiday, the next house move or job move, the next building project, the next thing to tap on our phone, the next shopping trip, the next date, the next way to pr procrastinate from facing our troubles, the next podcast, the next box set, the list is endless. We've got so many ways that we distract ourselves, so many ways that we fill our mind and fill our time and fill our energy, things that stop us having to deal with our troubles and to face up to them. Instead of looking to the Savior, the true Savior, we look to false saviors. And the problem with false saviors is that they don't ultimately save. Or they might give a, a veneer of salvation in the short term, but they don't ultimately save. Whatever way you're distracting yourself from talking to Jesus about your sin and your suffering and your fears and your failures, can I urge you, stop, turn to Jesus. He is there. Ask him to save you from these things. He is your Lord. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He is an ever-present time, ever-present help in times of trouble. You can cry out to him today. Well, whether you're just rejecting Jesus completely or whether you're in denial about your troubles or whether you are just distracting yourself from them, God's invitation to us this morning is to cry out, Lord, save me. I know myself that I need to be quicker to cry out, Lord, save me. I know that I worry too much. I know that I could be quicker to turn my concerns into Christ to Jesus. I know that I could be quicker to turn my problems into prayer. We have an enormous opportunity at this point in our nation's history to show people that our hope is not in how much supplies we've got in our home, how much pasta and lural and soap and all that kind of stuff. We have an opportunity to show that our hope is in something much more sure, something much more concrete. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's commit to showing that hope at this time. Let's commit to showing our confidence in Jesus to the world round about us. In the storms, let's look away from the waves and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, crying out to him and giving him the worship that he deserves. For he alone is the Son of God and he is mighty to save. Let's pray.